Thank you, Pastor Tim, for that prayer supplication and reminding us of the many, many needs that exist in the world in which we live and right here in our community and within our own church family as well. And so it's good to just know that we have the power of prayer. Amen? And no matter where we are, no matter what circumstances are, no matter the magnitude of the problem that we are looking at, our God is great, He's awesome, and He is able to handle anything as we lift up our voices in prayer. You don't have to feel helpless as long as you have a connection with God through prayer. You have access to the greatest power in all of creation, in all the universe. This morning I'll ask if you'll turn in your Bibles into the Old Testament to the Psalm 145. Psalm 145, and this series that I've been preaching through in the book of Psalms entitled Life Lessons from Psalms. Who would thunk that we could learn things written thousands of years ago that would still be applicable to our lives today that could help us to live our lives in a more meaningful way and certainly in a way that would be more in accordance to the will of God. There's much fruit to be gained out of these wonderful uh, poetic books that uh, make up the book of Psalms. Uh, of course, I haven't preached uh, through all of them, but selectively chosen three uh, psalms from each of the five books of the Psalms, so that at least we get a sampling as we walk through the, the book of Psalms. And so we find ourselves at a yet another Psalm of David, uh, Psalm 145, this acrostic Psalm of David, I believe, being not only, it's the last one of the, the Psalms that are, credit, are given credit to him, uh, and uh, yet I believe it's one of the most profound of the Psalms that he has written that we have in our Bible today. And, and I see it as a call to the community of faith, God's people, to come together in perpetual praise to God. To be in a continual spirit of praise to the God of gods, the King of kings. And to have a mindset of praise. David had this kind of a mindset. I believe praise came so natural to this shepherd boy who was later anointed the king of Israel that it was just a part of him. And so what we see is the overflow of that. This particular psalm was a regular part of the Jewish religious tradition, we're told. In fact, in Orthodox Judaism... It is repeated twice in the morning and once in the evening by what they call the ardent worshiper of Jehovah. And according to one of my commentaries, the, I quote, the Talmud, which is the authoritative body of Jewish writings and traditions, rather, uh, commends all who repeat this psalm three times a day as having a share in the world to come. So any serious-minded Jew knows Psalm 145. Most of them probably know it by heart, having repeated it over and over and over and over now. Whereas I don't advocate mechanical repetition of the Scriptures just for the sake of repeating the Word. I certainly would encourage all of us, and I do, I do believe that Christians would do well, to incorporate the focus of this psalm and the, on the many attributes and the acts of God into our personal and corporate worship. If you look at the elements that David gives us in praising God, and folks, really, that's what it's all about. Coming together on Sunday morning is more than just fellowshipping with friends at church and, 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 and having good Bible studies. It's, it's about praising God. So when we gather in the, in the sanctuary together, we should examine these elements of what consists of a good, wholesome praise experience. And I really believe we look here and we see that 
here by David. Now, something else I'd like just to remind us, lest it just fly past us. Remember, when we look at these psalms that are given to, or are credited to David, remember, these are, these are poetic books that are being written by a king. And not just any king. In that time, the greatest king. The greatest king that's ever, the earthly king that's ever sat on the throne of Israel. A man that is described by the Bible as being the apple of God's eye. A man after God's own heart. A king is writing this. And yet, I think it's interesting because in this psalm you find a king writing in praise and adoration to yet another king. A greater king. A king of kings. And so I think it's interesting, from the perspective of a king, you're finding praise given to the greatest king, the king of all the universe, the God who is sovereign and glorious, ruler of heaven and earth and all of creation. Now, I did mention, and you probably picked up on as we've gone through the Psalms, when we talk about a psalm being an acrostic, a poetic arrangement, if you will, uh, it's really a, a psalm in which each of the verses begin with a separate letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And as you look at this, there's a problem. Because you'll notice it has 21 verses. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And so what has happened is in some of the earlier manuscripts, you don't have the Hebrew letter none. It's none. <laughs> it's not there. But in some later translations, there is an insertion uh, attributed to some of the scrolls that were found there at Qumran, which we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, but, but it's interesting. We have a 21-verse psalm that is an acrostic psalm. But don't let that stump you. I doubt that it would. But anyway, as we look at this psalm of praise to God, let's break it down and let's, let's let God speak to us about elements of praise that should be in our own daily worship of God. First of all, as we look at these first verses, we talk about, David talks about praises to our great king. And you know, this, this ties into just David's mindset, because even in First Chronicles, in chapter 16, verse 28, David says to the people of Israel, ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord the glory do His name. Ascribe to the Lord glory and worship. He says, come before the Lord and bring an offering and worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. So David is always thinking in terms of drawing people to giving praise to God. And as we look in these first verses, let's look at verses 1 through 3. David says, I will extol you, my God, O King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. You'll notice that David is talking here, as he comes out of the gate, he comes out on a spiritual high. He's coming out with an element of great adoration of praise. Look at the, the, the synonyms for praise that David uses when he says, I extol you, I bless you, I bless you, I praise you. You're greatly to be praised. It's all saturated with his deep love and adoration for the Lord. And this, friend, is the heart of worship. The heart of worship is a deep, devoted love for God, a recognition of His absolute grace, greatness and His grace and His mercy and all the attributes of God. Let me ask you, when is the last time 
in your own personal devotion time, your own personal worship time with God, that you were so caught up in a, in a spirit of praise? When's the last time that you were just overwhelmed as you stopped to consider, as you read in God's Word, as the Spirit of God reminded you of all the great attributes of the God that we serve? When did that flood of God's greatness come over your soul that you were just caught up in worshiping God for His eternal nature, for His sovereign power, for His, His all-knowing abilities and His ever-presence in our lives and for His goodness and His mercy and His grace and His justice and his peace. I mean, when's the last time that all of that just like a crescendo came down upon you and you were just caught up in a spirit of praise? You say, well, I thought that was for the charismatics. No, it's for Christians. It's for people that love God. We express our love and adoration of those humans in our, in our lives, those people in our lives that we love and we, we cherish. Why wouldn't we do that for God? David worships the majesty of God is the great king. And I like the fact that his praise of God is unending. David says, every day I will bless you. My goodness, I think the average Christian would do good just to praise God every once in a while. And yet David says, every day. I can't think of a better way to start your day, ladies and gentlemen. Of course, I'm a big advocate for breakfast. Having grown up on a farm, we were always started the day with a big country breakfast. But let me tell you something. That spiritual breakfast is just as important. And a good breakfast of, of praising God is a great way to start your day. Because one of the things it does, it takes your mind off of yourself. It takes the focus off of you and it puts it upon God. Another thing that praising can do as you begin your day every day is it, takes, it, it, it tends to minimize the problems that you've probably been dwelling upon. Things that you maybe thought were so monumental and so big and unsurmountable, suddenly when you look at the greatness and the goodness of God, those things tend to shrink and, and it helps you to go on into your day. But then let's move on as we look at verses 4 through 6 because David says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts and I will declare in other words, in the Hebrew, that language is, I will, David says, I just gush with your greatness. I'm so filled with the knowledge of your greatness, O oh God. I'm so overwhelmed with the idea of how great and glorious you are. I can't contain it. It's just gushing out of my soul. As we look at the mighty works of God, they are always deserving of our praise. I like how David expresses in verse 4. One generation after another generation. After another generation. He says is declaring your praise. Who are telling of your works to one another. I don't know if you've been in a sports arena. Where somebody will start one of those waves. You know. Somebody, one section will stand up and they'll throw their hands up in the air and then they'll quickly sit down and the, the adjoining section will do the same and then the next and the next. And before you know it, they got a wave going all the, around, all the way around the stadium. It's really impressive and it's something to do while you're waiting on the game to start. <laughs> but I think about what David is saying. He says, just think down the, the, the timeline of, 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 of history. And, and, and think of the, the waves of praise that were started all the way back in the Old Testament with the covenant people of God. As they, David, for instance. 
And, and, and he's praising God and he's, he's declaring the greatness of God. He's reminding his children and grandchildren of, of the goodness of God and the great works of God. And he tells them and they're, they're filled with excitement. And before you know it, their generation picks up the wave of praise and they pass it on and to the next generation and to the next generation. Do you understand the words that we're reading from the word of God today? If you're blessed to be uh, the descendant of a Christian family, think about it. For generations, I, we're, we're reading scriptures that probably my great-grandfathers or great-great-grandfathers and grandmothers uh, were reading from the scriptures as they assembled together in that little country church back home. And, and the same thing for us. Think about it. When we sing those ageless hymns, those classic hymns of faith, as we were singing Amazing Grace, think about over the centuries how many of those who've gone ahead of us stood in the presence of God in the company of other believers and sang those exact same words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We need to tell our children. We need to tell our grandchildren. We need to be excited when we talk to the uh, oncoming generations about the glory of God so that it's one generation after another generation praising the mighty works of God and what God has done. You know, I'm afraid that in this highly technical world in which we live, in which science appears to be the God that many people bow down to, that mankind has lost the ability to be in awe at the things of God. Because we're so oriented to things that man creates. We're in awe at what man has done. Folks, this is the, the religion of humanism. Look what man has done. Look what man has created. Look what man has inv invented. Excuse me? Have you stopped to look around and just see what God has done? Not just recently? But from the beginning of the dawning of history? Is it so that we can't look at a sunrise and be absolutely overwhelmed with the greatness of the creative handiwork of God? Can we not look around us and see a season just on time, just as precise as it can be, birthing forth a whole new generation of creation around us and not be overwhelmed with the greatness of God? Who can lose the wonder of watching a, a little baby being born or, or watching the sonogram of a baby being formed in the womb of its mother and not be in absolute wonder? I was visiting with Sister Wendy before she escaped from the hospital with her bout there with her heart. And Wendy, I hope you don't mind me sharing. It's too late anyway. Because once I go this far, i got to go all the way. But just before they were going to let Wendy out of the hospital, they had a few other tests just to check on some things. They want to make sure everything was in order. And, and that day I was there visiting with you, Wendy. You remember they were going to do, was it the echocardiogram? And, and so, you know, I politely excused myself, as I typically do when they're going to do anything with a patient. Um, and so I stepped out in the hallway and, and waited for a while. And the nurse was in there with the machine and whatever. And uh, when I came back in, Wendy was just, she was just like, you know, in awe. She said, she said Pastor Charles, I, I wish you would have stayed in here. She said, that, that was awesome. She says, you know, just the, 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 that lady ran that thing around on my, on my uh, heart there. And, and uh, said that, uh, it gave me a picture of my heart. Says I was laying there watching my heartbeat, watching the chambers of my heart pump blood this way and that way, and the valves, uh, you know, and all of that. And you know, she was just really caught up in the wonder of the handiwork of God in her own heart. Of course, I know it was reassuring that your heart was still beating and the blood was still flowing. 
But, but you know, when is it though so that we lose the wonder of the works of God all around us? All around us. We sing that song, How Great Thou Art. Oh Lord, my God, when I am awesome wonder, consider all the worlds Thy hands have made. I see the stars and I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. When's the last time that we even stopped to reflect upon what that song even represents? I can remember as a little boy growing up in a church out there in the rural parts of North Carolina amongst a bunch of country folks. You know, you, you want to hear that song sung right, you need to hear a bunch of farmers sing it. Because you see, every day they're out there in the midst of God's creation. Every day they're dependent upon this God who puts the stars into heaven to cause the rain to come, to cause the crops to grow, to sustain them and their families. Let me tell you something. They sing how great thou art with a great sense of spirit. We've lost the sight of the wonders of God's great works around us. Just last week, we celebrated One of the greatest works of God in all of eternity. The cross of Christ, ladies and gentlemen, was a great work of God. Where He did for us that which we could never do when He placed His own precious Son to hang there on that cross out there outside of the gates of Jerusalem and to be the precious Lamb of God where His atoning blood would take the place of all of our sins, pay the price for our sins. Listen, it was a great work that Jesus did on that cross. It's not just another holiday. Don't lose the wonder of the great work of the empty tomb. Do you understand the significance that the tomb of Jesus was empty on that third day? Had his body still been in that tomb, let me tell you something, it would still be there today like all the so-called religious leaders that the world follows after. David praises the Lord for his righteousness and goodness. It generates a heart of praise. Look at verse 7. David says, they shall utter the memory of your great goodness. They shall sing of your righteousness. David repeatedly through the Psalms in Psalm 51, 14 and Psalm 143, 1. David says, oh Lord, we praise you for your righteousness. You are a righteous God. And God is not only just righteous. Listen, God is a good God. Amen. His goodness is worthy of our praise. We talk about, you know, ain't God good. Pardon the English, but He is. He is. God is good all the time. Amen? And all the time. God is good. God cannot help but be good. And David says, Oh, they praise you for your wonderful goodness. I don't know about you, but isn't it great to know that in a world that has gone so absolutely wrong, My goodness gracious, when citizens and leaders are fighting over who can go to the bathroom and which bathroom and what is proper, we've lost our way. When people have no idea of their own gender compass and they're so confused sexually, we've lost our way. When we go out of our way to protect eagles' eggs, and I think that's a good thing to do, but I mean, my goodness, to make it a felon to, 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 to destroy an eagle's nest, and yet you can kill innocent babies in the womb of their mother. We've lost our way. There's so much wrong with this world, and ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't appear to be getting any better. 
And if you read the back of the book, you know it won't until Jesus comes again. But isn't it good to know that in a world that is going so absolutely wrong that we still can put our trust and our faith in a God who can make it all right. And He will one day. And we can depend upon what His Word says is right. God's Word is absolutely true. Amen? Every part of it, I believe it from from the beginning to the end, Every word is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for us. His word is absolutely true. His ways are perfect. His promises are unshakable because God is good and God is righteous. But David goes on as he continues in this great uh, uh, psalm of praise. It's it's almost like a, a great anthem of praise. He praises, he gives praises not only to our great king, but he gives praises to our gracious Lord. As you look with me there in verses 8 and 9, he says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. Let me just stop there a second. Aren't you, aren't you glad God's not type A? Just takes your head off at the first mistake you make, you know. Ah, what did you do? You know? so, now I realize I may be stepping on the toes of a few of our type A people. Chill, take your medicine, sit back and relax, okay? But I'm glad that God is gracious and compassionate. And He's slow to anger. And He's great in mercy. I needed mercy. I don't know about you. I need His mercy. David needed His mercy. Of all the people to talk about and praise God for His mercy, David was. Because David, as I pointed out last time in Psalm 51, that great repentant prayer of repentance, David says, Oh God, I sinned. Oh, did I ever sin? And worst of all, I did it in Your very sight. I did it before Your eyes. David threw himself at the mercy of God. And David experienced the mercy of God. God could have killed him. God could have annihilated him. But God saw the repentance in David's heart. He saw the the deep hurt in David's heart over his sin towards God. And God forgave him. Folks, that's mercy. When God withholds that which we deserve. And extends to us instead his love and his grace. Oh, David says, oh, the Lord, he is gracious. He's writing from first-hand experience. He's full of compassion. He's slow to anger, great in mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. You know what? We've all benefited from God's grace. We've all benefited from God's mercy. Listen, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me tell you something. You know what it's like to be forgiven. You know what it's like to be a condemned, wretched sinner. That's what Paul says in Colossians in chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. He says, And you who were alienated and enemies in your your minds by wicked works, yet He has reconciled you in the body of His flesh through death that He may present you holy and blameless in His sight. Oh, listen, let me, let me tell you something. If you say you're saved, if you call yourself a child of God, if you say that you're, you have eternal life, I'll tell you what, it's only by the mercy of God. Paul goes, I mean, uh, uh, David goes on to talk about our Lord 
God and how He is mighty and sovereign. And that in in and of itself is worthy of our praise. As we look at verse 10 and, and, and beyond, All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Oh, listen, our God is a mighty God. He is an awesome God. He is the ultimate sovereign. Listen, all these rulers and presidents and, and, and prime ministers and kings of the world can talk all they want about their kingdom and their domain and all of that. I've got news for them. There's only one true king. There's one true ruler. And that is God. And he, there is no end to his kingdom. There is no end to his reign. You know, and I think about how Paul talked about in in Romans chapter 8, how all of creation, even now, groans under the curse of sin. Mankind, still under the awful curse of sin, groans. Those of us who are believers and children of God, we groan in this this earthly tabernacle subject to flesh and, and, and disease and disability and pain and suffering. We groan. Paul says all of creation groans, yearning for that day when creation will be restored. And Paul is is saying that day is coming. Christ will make it right. We saw last Sunday, Pastor Tim was expounding upon Mark 13 and he described the kingdom to come. When Jesus comes again, he will make all things right. He will establish a new heaven. He will establish a new earth. And then all uh, of creation will witness the wonderful restoration of God in His dominion. As we go further in verses 14 through 16, David continues on as he talks about our Lord and the praise that we give Him because He is not only mighty and sovereign, but He's faithful and merciful In in verse 14, David says, The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all those who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you and you give them their food in their season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. And I think about how sometimes we get so caught up in worrying about, you know, we've got a plan for the future. And I'm a big proponent of planning. It's a good thing to to wisely plan for tomorrow. Don't just live for today. But listen, don't get so obsessed and worried about, you know, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What am I, you know? And the Bible makes it very clear. Jesus said there in in the Beatitudes or in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear. Don't worry about it. Yeah, you can plan towards it, but don't worry about it. He says, just consider the lilies of the valley. You, they don't worry about what they're going to wear. They got, they're more beautifully arrayed than, than Solomon was. He says, hey, have you noticed the sparrows? They're not over there you know, having ulcers because they're worried about, are we going to have enough bird seed for tomorrow? What about next week? It's a snowstorm coming. <laughs> I've got a few bird feeders, and I'm going to tell you something. None of those sparrows look worried. They look fat. That's about it. Greedy little creatures, I'll tell you that. But anyway, they don't, I don't see them wringing their little feathers and saying, oh my goodness, 
Yeah, Jesus said in Matthew 33, 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all of these things will be supplied unto you. And as you look at these verses, verses 14 through 16, you see David portraying the God of the universe, the sovereign, majestic king, as a very caring king. A king who, who provides for his creation. And that's a beautiful thing. Unlike the false gods that are the imaginations of man and oftentimes are, are portrayed as being capricious and unpredictable, David reminds the people that God is faithful. God is involved. He's caring. He looks at His creation. He, he's the God who, who helps those who are hurting. Look what He says there. He says that the Lord upholds all who fall and raises up those who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Listen, unlike the pantheists would have us to believe, God is not confined to creation. <laughs> and unlike the deists, God is not a disjointed, disinterested, disconnected deity from creation. Listen, there's no mistake that God is sovereign. He's high and lifted up above creation as a majestic sovereign ruler of all of creation, heaven and earth. But He is also imminent. And I thank God for that. God is involved in His creation. So that when, they, when, when His people fall, He's there to lift them up when we have needs. Why do we have our prayer supplication? If we don't have a God that hears our prayers, who cares? Who's willing to minister in response to our appeals to His, his uh, help? If we didn't have a God who was a faithful and merciful, eminent God involved in His creatures. And I thank God for that. He opens up His hands as it says in verse 16, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. As we look further in chapter uh, Psalm 145 verses 17 and on, it's interesting because in 17 through 21, David is betraying the God or portraying God in these closing verses as a God who is graciously involved in creation, his creation. But don't miss what he's saying here. Yes, God does care for all of creation. Okay? You remember in Genesis in chapter 1, as it was closing out the, the week of creation, God looked upon all of creation, everything that he had created, and he said, It is very good. I'll go so far as to say God loves His creation. It's His handiwork. It's His original. God created this world. He created the heavens. He's certainly not pleased with the impact that the curse of sin has had upon His handiwork. But God loves creation. His creation. Let me just take you back quickly to verse 9. The Lord is good to all. All. I emphasize all. And His tender mercies are over all His works. And then if you drop down to verse 15 and 16 again, the eyes of all, all look expectantly to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Listen, God is in, involved in all of His creation. He cares about all of His creation. Every person on the face of the earth is dependent upon God, whether they realize it or not. Every creature on the face of the earth is dependent upon God, whether it realizes it or not. Because if God chose to extract light out of the formula, poof. I think Pastor Tim talked about that 
And he's the physicist in the crowd. He can do that. But the fact is, without light, there's no life. Or what if God just says, oh, I think I'll just take the oxygen out of the air. There goes life. Or what if I just dry up all the rivers and all the oceans and all the lakes and take every drop of water from the face of the earth. There goes life. Let me tell you something. All of creation, every living being, whether it recognizes it or not, or whether they recognize it or not, is dependent upon God. And God is gracious. But then I also want you to see that not only is God's royal love extended to all of creation, but as you look at verse 18 and on, I want you to see God's redeeming love is reserved for those He chooses. God's redeeming love is reserved for those He chooses. Look at what David says. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. To all who call upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him or respect Him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but the wicked He will destroy. Let's just stop there for a second because David has said several things very important. Yes, God does have a general love for all of creation, but God has a special love. A redeeming love. A love that is tailored for those who are His own. And David qualifies them because he says God is near to those who call upon Him and who call upon Him in truth. What is the truth? The truth is the Word of God. The truth is what God has revealed about Himself. Oh, there are a lot of people across the globe who call upon God. They, they use all different kinds of terminologies ranging from the man upstairs to, to, you know, just God in general or any God or whatever. But the fact is, they don't call upon Him in truth because they don't know the truth. And the truth is what makes known to them who God really is. He also will hear the cry, their cry and save them. And indeed, there was a time in our life, spiritually, where we cried out to God. We cried out to Him in our brokenness and in our sinfulness and in our repentance and He heard us and He saved us. David understood what it was like to cry out to God. How many times as a fugitive running for his life from Saul and other enemies did David call out to God, cry out to God. God heard him. And then when he was deeply immersed in his own sin and repentance, he cried out to God and God heard him and God saved him. But then in verse 20, he says, The Lord preserves all who love Him. God preserves all who love Him. Do you love the Lord? Do you really love the Lord? Because this is a wonderful biblical promise right here. God says, I will preserve those who love me. You say, well, Pastor, what about those great saints in the early days that that were martyrs for the faith? And, you know, it doesn't look like God preserve them hey listen their bodies may have been burned at the stakes their bodies may have been torn apart in the Colosseum I think about as, as Pastor Tim was bringing out in our prayer supplication the brothers and sisters in the Lord who, who are being persecuted for their faith even now even when we die in this physical body for the cause of Christ God has reassured us that if we love him he will preserve us and we will be with him 
And every person who dies in faith in Jesus Christ is guaranteed by God that he will preserve their soul into eternity, into the very presence of God. The question is, do you really love him? Do you love him enough to recognize how lost you are in your sins? Do you love him enough to acknowledge that there's nothing that you can do to rid yourself of the awful curse of sin? Do you love him enough to believe what his word says about his son Jesus Christ, the son of God who came into the world as the savior of all mankind? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? Do you love him enough to put your faith and trust and say, Lord, I'm turning my back on the world. I'm turning my back on sin. I'm turning my back on my old flesh nature and the things that that cause me to do the things that displease you. I'm turning my back on all of that and I choose to follow you. I commit myself to be obedient to your word. And I want to become more like you. Because David gives a word of warning there. He says, just as the Lord will preserve those who love him, the wicked he will destroy. And folks, there are no exceptions there. Those who reject Jesus Christ, those who reject God and His wonderful revelation of love through the truth of His Word, those who choose to reject God's love will be destroyed. I know there's a lot, uh, quite a, uh, unfortunately, way too many preachers who shy away from the subject of hell because it's unpleasant. It's not popular. Modern man frowns upon such an idea. But the fact is, the Bible is very clear that there is a place of torment, a place of, of, of anguish, a place of judgment. God will judge every person who he perceives as wicked. And those who reject his son are wicked. He says they will be destroyed. Make sure that you know the Lord. Make sure that you love the Lord. Make sure that not only do you know him, make sure he knows you. I say that because I think about what Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one, When he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. But he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, to me will enter to the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Make sure Jesus knows you. So that in that great day of judgment, he won't look at you and say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Oh yeah, you called upon my name. Oh yes, you went through religious rituals. Oh yes, your name was on a church roll. But you never truly gave your life to me. You never truly put your faith and trust in me. At best, you were a nominal believer. Make sure that you are walking daily, obediently, by faith with Jesus Christ And that's the wonderful glory of all of this. Is that David praises God because he's made it possible for us to know him. And to love him. And to serve him. And to follow him. And to be counted among those who love the Lord. Well as we close. I thought it was so interesting when you look at verse 21. David almost begins. Ends how you began. Look at verse 21. He says, My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless His holy name forever and ever. 
He began with saying, I will extol you, my God, O King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the, is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. Praise is a big deal, folks, in the Word of God. Praise is a big deal in our relationship with God. In fact, the whole Psalms, the book of Psalms, ends on a high crescendo of praise to God. Look at uh, Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Look at Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. Look at Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heaven. Praise Him in the heights. Look at Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and His praise in the congregation of the saints. Look at uh, Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty firmament. Praise Him. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lute and harp. Boy, we got to get some instruments. Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And the people of God said, Praise the Lord. 